Utah is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SUP China, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. This week, we hear from Sam Sachs, Cybersecurity Policy and Digital Economy Fellow at New America, a nonpartisan think tank. I'm struck not only by her grasp and eloquence surrounding deep issues for both the U.S. and China, but also by her passion, for which she exudes in both her professional and personal life. We cover various stages in her career and some of the tough decisions that she had to make, while also digging into recent developments with the trade war and their influence on technology, data security, and supply chains. Let's listen in. Hi, Sam. We are so excited to have you on Ta for Ta today. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. And I think what I'd first like to start with is, for listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're currently at and what you're up to. I am a cybersecurity policy and China digital economy fellow at New America. New America is a policy think tank located in Washington. I, however, am not in Washington. I live in New York. Um, And at the moment, I am sitting looking out my window at Bear Mountain and the beautiful Hudson River. I'm up in a small town about an hour outside of New York City, which is which is quite lovely. So I get to be both in the D.C. policy world and then be outside of it, too, which is a great combo. I'm actually very familiar with Bear Mountain. I just ran a race up there. So uh, really, really, really beautiful, beautiful area of New York to be based in. Yeah. So I actually just want to start right from the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit more about where your initial interest in China spawned from? And then how did that end up with you landing in Beijing as a Fulbright scholar? It goes back to eighth grade when I was getting C's in Spanish class in middle school. And I was looking out at what the language options were for high school. And I noticed that they offered Chinese. And I was like, you know what? it is time to switch up languages. Now, this may sound crazy that I couldn't hack Spanish, so I went into Chinese. But here's (laughs) a secret. For people like myself who are somewhat grammatically challenged, Chinese is a great language because you don't have tenses or inflections. But if you're good at memorizing and very visual, it works. So it kind of worked for my learning style. So I started out in Chinese class in ninth grade, kind of went head over heels into the language. I didn't go to China until I was in college. I went to Brown and I did Princeton in Beijing, the summer language immersion program, summer of 2001. It was probably the most depressing summer of my entire life, but a very important summer. And I came back and I was like, I never want to go back to Beijing. And I even asked my professor, I was like, is it possible to study Chinese but not go to China? And she was like, no, that's pretty crazy. The good news is after college, I got a Fulbright grant to go back to Beijing and lived there and just sort of fell in love with the city. And to this day, I really love being over there. So that's how it all started. Yeah. And what struck you about those early years? I can imagine providing training and legal services for migrants was difficult work, but also really rewarding work. So I was based at an organization in Beijing that did 
sort of grassroots legal training for migrants in the city, specifically women migrants who were in the informal service sector. And um, it was a really interesting organization to be a part of and an interesting time to be there. Um, I think this was a time when, when there was sort of a big emphasis on you know, the development of the cities and urbanization, but the sort of informal service class coming in from the countryside that was really fueling a lot of that growth. So yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting time and very different from what I'm doing now. Yeah. And so there are a few more steps between to what you're doing now and where you were at. So how did you transition from being a Fulbright Scholar to your next career steps? A lot of people go into the Fulbright Scholar program and they've ended up in so many various different career paths, progressions, uh, trajectories. So I think that's a really helpful thing for people that might be at that point in their life. I came back, moved to New York, and got a very low-level job as a research assistant at the Council on Foreign Relations. And there I was introduced to the foreign policy world. Um, I worked for a fellow that um, was a former Department of Defense official, and so I got interested in international security studies, went to graduate school, master's at Yale, um, and then came out and was sort of and began working for a, um, a company called Defense Group, where we were doing open source Chinese language analysis, looking at science and technology development in China. So that really, which at this point is now over a decade ago, was kind of where I brought the Chinese language background and combined it with this at the time, to me, was a new field, which was looking at emerging technologies and particularly the defense industry in China and kind of cut my teeth on Chinese websites, looking at who was developing what and what that meant sort of for the future of at the time, the big buzzword was strategic emerging industries in China, the mega projects, so looking at state plans to really build out certain industries in China. So then you ended up working at Eurasia Group. And can you tell us maybe about an engagement that really had an impact on you that pushed you towards your next direction? Sure. So prior to going to Eurasia Group, I worked a bit more in the public sector space, um, looking at science and technology development in China, but then realized I was interested in the business side. So as you can see, this is very much a crossing the river by feeling the stones career path where Chinese <laughs> and Chinese language has kind of anchored the whole thing. Yeah. But doing it, I would kind of, one topic would emerge that was particularly interesting. And I go, huh, I want to double click that, dive in a little deeper. And Eurasia Group was really neat because it was looking at how the politics impact the market. So if you're a multinational company, if you're an investor, how do politics shape what it means to be doing business in China, to be investing in China? Um, and I took sort of the technology background that I developed over the past couple of years and really brought it to the private sector. Um, and this was this, I think, was was a really formative experience. It was where I learned something which to this day I use a lot in my career, which is how to take complex ideas and communicate them at a high level in pretty high impact environments, right? And I, I think back, because I do a lot of public speaking in my current work, and I think back to this one time, um, we Eurasia Group has a lot of Japanese clients, and I was in Tokyo with Ian Bremmer, who's the president of Eurasia Group. And I was mm -hmm. really nervous because I was like giving presentations in front of these you know Japanese CEOs. And he pulled me aside afterward and he said, Sam, you come across as too junior because you're being very formal in the presentations that you're given. Let's work on 
you know, can you figure out a way to sort of convey all of this knowledge that you have, but in a much more sort of self-confident way that comes across as more spontaneous? And I was like, whoa. So it kind of opens up this whole new world of like, how do you deliver information, but not in a very stiff PowerPoint way where you're just having a conversation and that authority and confidence can really project when you tap into that. And I think Eurasia Group is where I honed that, which I use all the time now in more of the public facing work I'm doing. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more. How, let's unpack. How did you figure out how to convey that confidence in a, in a spontaneous way? So there's this great book by a woman named Tara Moore, and it's called Playing Big. And it's written with the idea, it's sort of to help women tap into that confidence, right? Because I think imposter syndrome is something that a lot of women suffer from. Men do as well, but I think it's a little more prevalent among women. Um, she had this great chapter that I read last year. I was on the plane going to a conference in Aspen, and I read this chapter. And it, the idea was, you know, a lot of the times we feel this need to go into a meeting and over-prepare, like Google everything you possibly can before you go into the meeting, right? So there's like nothing that you don't know. And I would find yes. myself doing this. <laughs> and, and in Tara Moore's book, she said, you know what? When you are a real, at, a, at a leadership level, it's, you need to own what you do and you don't know. And it's not about having an encyclopedia in your head. Frankly, you know, sometimes more junior analysts, their job is to know every, every detail and look up things. It's not about that, right? It's about being able to sort of, with a limited amount of information, give a opinion spontaneously. You know, what do you think about that? What's your instinct given sort of the body of experience that you have, the information you do know, and then respond to that in an intuitive kind of off the cuff way. And that's sort of how you can help tap into that voice. And I thought that was so helpful. And I think about that all the time. The other thing that she said, talked about unhooking from praise and criticism. We talk a lot about not necessarily needing to take every criticism to heart, but the other, the flip side of that is not necessarily needing to hook into praise and affirmation either and kind of being your own judge of what feedback is valuable to you and constructive and what feedback you don't necessarily need and not always being so dependent on it externally. So I found that book, Playing Big, to be really helpful. That's really interesting. I haven't read that. I have to put that on my summer reading list. Now, I did some stalking of you, and I noticed that you were at Siemens for a pretty short time. It was a sprint. What's required to launch an Asian industrial cyber business, and how do you do that in such a short amount of time? So I was at Eurasia Group for about three years. I went on maternity leave to, for my, to have my second child in July of 2016. Um, and during that time, I got approached by Siemens from a recruiter to come help them launch a new business in Asia where they'd be offering industrial cybersecurity, um, which essentially is the sort of cybersecurity for physical systems. So if you think about energy and manufacturing and transportation, this is where you have it's called operating technology, and it's a very different kind of cybersecurity. Anyway, not to go into too many details. I was, I, when I was at Eurasia Group, had been thinking, gosh, it would be really neat to go and actually work on the client side, get some sort of multinational company experience and on the ground in Asia. 
So I said yes, didn't go back to Eurasia Group, um, and joined Siemens. The problem was I had a newborn baby, my second child, and I was traveling back and forth to Asia all the time, sometimes back-to-back weeks. And I kind of had this moment, I was in Tokyo, and I got a message from my boss asking me when I came back from Tokyo to then turn around and go to Texas the next week. And I said, you know, we've talked about this. I don't want to be gone back-to-back weeks from my family. Um, And he didn't really respect that and sent me a calendar invite for the Texas trip. All I did was hit decline and made up my mind uh, in Tokyo that I was going to come back and I was going to quit that job. It was scary because I didn't have anything else lined up. And I'd sort of always gone from one very stable sort of prestigious position to the next. So it was kind of jumping into an unknown. And it was perhaps one of the most important decisions I ever made. I came home. I spent the summer with my son, being a mom, um, and just like fully being in the present and resetting. And then I joined um, a think tank and thought that I would sort of begin this next chapter um, you know, in a in a place where I could really have more autonomy over taking the issues I'd been working on for my whole career, but in a bit more of a self-directed way and haven't looked back since. It's been fantastic. That's amazing. And what I really like, I think, is that most people, not most people, but some people might say that, you know, that time, that summer to come home and, and be with family was a, an in-between moment. But you've made a very conscious effort to to really think of it as a, a step, as a stepping stone, not just an in-between. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I really like that because I don't think that's very common. Absolutely. It wasn't an in-between. It was itself a really important time. And I always encourage people to sort of take that time. You know, maternity leave doesn't necessarily have to just be the weeks and months right after having a baby. It can be very special to take time off. And I know some fathers, for instance, there's some you know, pretty progressive tech companies, for instance, out there that are offering long maternity leave for dads even, and they can take it at any point. So I've heard of dads taking their paternity leave when their kids are a year or so old and them similarly having that be a really meaningful chapter. Yeah. And do you think there was a big difference between, so you've had experiences in academia and think tanks in the private sector the corporate side, do you think that there's a difference? Uh, is there something that you felt like you leaned more closely to that you uh, just found more agreeable with you and the way that you approach your professional career? It's funny. My husband will say, Sam, you're working too many hours and too hard to be in a think tank. Aren't you supposed to just be sitting around <laughs> thinking? But the reality is I'm probably working more intensely and maybe even more hours than I worked when I worked in the private sector. But I'm doing it on my own terms and on topics and and in spaces that I love. And so um, I don't know. I almost don't notice it. Right. Like I was up this morning before dawn working on a couple of publications. I'm organizing a new conference series for next fall. So sort of reaching out to my network. I mean, I think what's great about it is that um, I get to both have the advantage of autonomy. So I'm deciding what am I researching? What am I writing? What events am I speaking at? But I'm not alone. I have a, a really wonderful community of colleagues that, you know, someone once said to me, if you're going to work for somebody else, 
whether it's a company, whether it's a nonprofit, whatnot, it should be a force multiplier so that when you take that thing that you're writing and you get feedback from a colleague, you know that that feedback is going to make it stronger. That collaboration is going to sort of create a something which is much greater than the individual parts. And so I feel very lucky at New America um, in our cyber program, we have a community of people all over the world that are looking at Chinese technology and cyber policies. And, you know, I can be sitting, looking out the window, you know, at Bear Mountain, and I can be on the phone one moment with a, you know, a Wall Street Journal reporter in Beijing, another with a colleague based out at Stanford, as we're sort of trying to collaborate on how do you interpret the new cross-border data transfer that just came out of China? Um, and then can be on the phone with a congressional staffer preparing for an upcoming hearing. Um, and so I just feel very privileged to be able to do this in such a wonderful community, but then be able to go and, you know, go meet my son for a field trip and take him swimming and, and make all of that happen. So it's worked for us. It may not work for everybody, but it's sort of the sweet spot that I found at the moment. For sure. And you know, I think this leads really well. I, we would be remiss uh, not asking about some of the work that you're doing in cybersecurity policy and around the digital economy and your role right now as a fellow at New America. I mean, just because the entire cyber policy space, I feel like, is dynamically changing. Uh, there's constantly new rules, new components that are affecting the way that uh, different institutions, countries are approaching cybersecurity, the, the private sector is approaching cybersecurity. So do you think that there are some new rules around cybersecurity? And what should we, maybe people that are not as deeply ingrained in the space as you are, be keeping an eye on? Sure. Well, maybe I should just first back up a bit and just in, briefly introduce what I really focus on within the cyber field. For so sure. I'm wearing, my research focuses in two areas. One is at New America, we have a program called DigiChina, which I mentioned before. And we translate and analyze any kind of document, primary source documents that come out from China focused on the digital economy, whether that's cross-border data flows. Our team was one of the first to translate China's AI development plan a few years ago. Um, so that's really a primary sourced, fact-based um, kind of analytical strand of my work. The second is I just launched a project last week at New America, and it's called Data and Great Power Competition. Um, I've done a lot of work in particular on China's data policies, but it steps back a bit and looks at data in a geopolitical context. So thinking about the fact that we know that Data matters for leadership and technologies like machine learning and AI, but I think that something that has not been studied as much, which will be the topic of my, my project, is data governance. So the way that the government interacts with the private sector to really set the rules for who can harness the value that comes from data, what can they do with that? And as we think about the U.S.-China relationship, I think it's become very clear that technology is front and center in a growing competition, but also the interconnection that really defines the U.S.-China relationship, right? And I think that data governance is something that's somewhat understudied as 
China, Europe, United States, India, Japan, governments around the world are beginning to create regimes for who can collect data, what can they do with it, who can they share it with. And I think that these different regimes and the levers related to it, whether it's laws or regulations or international trade agreements, is going to have a profound effect on this broader U.S.-China technology rivalry around the world. So that's that's sort of when we talk about I think maybe cybersecurity may even not be the best term to describe sort of the focus of the work that I'm doing. It's more of the sort of digital policy landscape um, and what it means in this broader geopolitical situation we're in. That's a really great redirect. So back to that question within that context, do you think there are some new rules around the digital economy and data in the way that the U.S. and China interact? I think we are in uncharted waters right now in the U.S.-China relationship. And, you know, no matter what, if we get a trade agreement, which now is 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 looking less likely than it was uh, even, you know, two months ago, no matter what, technology and digital policies are going to be a long simmering source of friction, I think, between the two sides for years to come in ways that I think will really define the 21st century. The problem is that, you know, when we think about there's these terms that are thrown out there, like a a tech cold war, a digital iron curtain, these are not technologies that map neatly onto political borders the way that, say, they did in the Cold War era. Um, And I think we're seeing this play out right now around the Huawei saga, where you have a U.S. government that is intent on having a 5G network around the world that is essentially free of any Chinese equipment. Um, And meanwhile, you have global supply chains, companies on both sides, um, that, that, that it is not so easy to segregate in that way. And so that, that to me is something that is, is just really important sort of to defining the current moment. You know, I hear that from the U.S. industry side, there is tremendous pushback to what is go- the direction that Washington is on. I think you have a sort of a group of very hardline national security stakeholders that are pushing to separate the systems. And I think that you also have a sort of private sector and also in the think tank world, in the academic world, there are others that understand that relationship is much more interconnected. And we may be shooting ourselves in the foot if we continue to go down that path. So that's kind of what I spend my time watching at the moment. So for anyone following the quote unquote trade war, and as you mentioned in the past couple months, the prospect of a stabilizing trade agreement is seeming further and further away from grasp. And so one of the things that I think you also talk about is, you know, decoupling an extreme potential outcome from trade is going to be extremely costly and difficult. And if the U.S. could decouple its system from China, what, from your perspective, would be the resulting fallout? You know, the American Chamber of Commerce in China recently released a survey where they found that something like 40% of their members are looking to move manufacturing facilities outside of China. Um, I'm already sort of hearing anecdotally from companies that are there that they're considering reducing China exposure. But it's also kind of like a whipsaw. I mean, I'm also hearing from others that they're doubling down and are really going to be trying to sort of localize even more so they can make it in this really complex environment. But, you know, to your question of what would this look like, 
if we continue down the path that we're on, you know, say there is no settlement to what's happening with Huawei. After August, the temporary general licenses that have been given to U.S. Huawei suppliers are set to run out, which means those U.S. companies that sell parts to Huawei, as well as the non-U.S. companies that have some U.S. components in them, will have to find other buyers. And in the near term, I think there's going to be extremely disruptive um, and there are a number of, of sort of ramifications. I mean, one is just the, you know, the revenue from U.S. companies that are selling to Huawei. It's not just like uh, this is this is a pure revenue play, but that revenue made in the China market is then put back into R&D that U.S. companies are investing in 5G, for example. So we're talking about sort of the five so-called 5G race. The U.S. can't really be leaders in 5G if we're not if we lose that source of R&D, right? So that's that's one effect. The other is is I think that we're going to be moving in a path where you're going to have Chinese and non-Chinese supplied systems, and third-party countries around the world are going to have to be in this decision of choosing which vendor are they going to go with. Um, in places that stick with Huawei, for example, a Huawei phone. If Huawei doesn't have a license to keep using Google's Android operating system, they use their own indigenous system, then you're going to see a situation where those countries that are using Huawei um, are going to have maybe more Chinese apps loaded onto the phone. So you're going to have sort of growing markets for Baidu could become the default in those places. And for email or mapping, you could have... Didi, right? So whatever Chinese app is, is going to come along with, with that whole ecosystem, which would come in a Huawei phone potentially. Mm. So that's just sort of one example. But there are a number of other, there are many different sort of effects of this, which I think, you know, has been, some people writing about this have sort of said, this is the start of the end of globalization as we know it. This model since the 1990s, where, you know, the idea of maximize efficiency in whatever mar- market of the world to do that. Um, I think there's a sort of recalibration where rather than maximizing efficiency, it's sort of putting great power competition, great power politics first ahead of that efficiency um, and then seeing interconnection more as a source of vulnerability or something to be weaponized. And this is a fundamental shift. And just to go back to the supply chains for a second, from a technology perspective, do you think there's any value in the U.S. specifically, but also China having to rethink their global supply chains and how everything moves. Um, just in the sense that it's almost been this this constant churn that the provenance, the, the way that we supply things has happened not as a result of uh, conscious decision-making, but just because that's the way that uh, has been most convenient and effective? Well, I think the alternative then is you move to a sort of form of managed trade, you know, mm. which we're not about sort of markets. It's about, you know, we're always criticizing Beijing for state-led industrial policy, and we get into a situation of managed trade. I mean, this is just a whole different way. And I'm not a political economist, you know, but I think that there's sort of a whole nother approach that comes with that, that we really need to think through. Like, what does it mean if you have a national security agenda driving global trade? And not to say that national security is not important. I mean, my gosh, that I, that's, that's not the point at all. And, I, and But 
I just think that that managed trade mentality um, is something which we need to, if, if that's the path the U.S. wants to go down, then I think there needs to be a very serious consideration of what are the second and third order effects of that? And does that actually make us more secure or does it create a more destabilized, insecure world? And I just don't think that that kind of thinking is happening. Mm. I'm really happy though that you did bring up the, the Huawei example to, to paint the picture And with the Trump administration's recent decision to restrict the sale of U.S. technology to Huawei, why do you think that Trump is taking a page from Xi Jinping's playbook? I have no idea what's going on in his head, right? I do know that a few weeks ago when the entity list was announced, designation was announced, when you had this new executive order, I looked at the language of the executive order, which Everyone sort of talked about the executive order as being really focused on banning Huawei from U.S. networks. And I get that. Like there are, you know, there is an argument to be made that there should be some constraints um, on national security grounds. Right. But the executive order, the way that it was written was so much broader than just Huawei. It essentially said the U.S. government has discretionary power to ban any transaction deemed a national security risk from a foreign adversary. And if you think about that language, if you were just to sort of a blind test and compare it, say, to China's cybersecurity law, I think it would be impossible to determine which was China's cybersecurity law and which was the U.S. government executive order. And I wrote a piece about this and basically said, um, Trump administration, this is an opportunity not to repeat Beijing's mistakes in management of cyber policy. But as to why, you know, I think that we have moved into a moment now where China is viewed not just as a competitor, but as an existential threat. And it's coming from a position of viewing China as an adversary on ideological, on civilizational terms, which to me is quite dangerous. Um, at, at New America earlier this spring, we hosted the head of policy planning at the State Department, our CEO, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who previously held that position herself at the State Department. And the comment that was made from the current State Department official was, in regards to China, this is the first time that the U.S. has had a non-Caucasian adversary. And Mm. I think Anne-Marie rightly said, well, wait a second, what about Japan? So it's sort of factually inaccurate, but it's also very dangerous to be putting this on racial terms. And I think that when you say, well, why is this happening? You know, I think that there are some influential figures in Washington who are viewing this confrontation on those sort of clash of civilization terms. And that's what's really driving this. Hmm. Could you dig into that a little bit more? In what way? I think what you're bringing up is is really interesting about clash of civilizations and the differences, I think, in just general outlook and future outlook for how they approach technology. You know, going all the way back to IPO disputes um, and you know, protection of data and the way that China and the U.S. look even at privacy. Do you think that these fundamental differences in the way that both countries look at the way that they manage and use their data is going to be a, a key tension point continuing on in the future? So I think the first thing to do in thinking about what what China's technological ambitions are. You know, I use the word China, but I think it's important first to sort of 
not treat China as monolithic. And so you've got a Chinese government, a sort of Beijing's aspirations for moving up the value chain, shifting away from this state-led heavy manufacturing model, looking to be sort of globally competitive in things like AI, in cloud computing, in next generation wireless networks, all of that. And you have state plans that are sort of aspirational in that regard. Um, But I also think that when you look at what's really happening on the ground a lot, this is not really just a state-led thing. You have... um, a very vibrant entrepreneur, private sector-led technological push, right? So AI is pretty much a private sector-led thing in China. Um, And you have very innovative Chinese companies where there's really a sort of push-pull with the government. Um, And so when we think, when I think going back to this sort of Washington view of clash of civilizations, to me, this is sort of just looking at the government state side of it without recognition of the fact that you it's a much more complex picture than that. And probably, you know, engineers in Silicon Valley and engineers in China who are working on sort of similar problem sets have a lot more in common in the way that they're going about it than I think the sort of Washington consensus is looking at it. So I think that's sort of the first thing. But yeah, are there fundamental differences? Absolutely, right? I've been doing a lot of work on China's data protection system, and there are all of the rules and regulations coming out right now around how do you protect data? And I've been saying that I think sort of data privacy in China has what I've been calling a split identity in that the government's rolling out all of these new rules, which were sort of modeled on GDPR for how you collect and use data. Um, And it's really to put a check on what the companies are doing, on what Chinese domestic companies are doing, as well as the sort of vast industry of data brokers in China, which is where China got its wild west of data. It's a free for all kind of reputation. But at the same time, the government is introducing more expansive tools to access that data in ways that would not be permissible here in the United States, for example. And that kind of internal contradiction you see all over the place. The other week at DigiChina, we translated something called the data security measures, which has a lot of these sort of more, the the goal of it really is to give Chinese internet users more control and ownership of their data pretty strict consent requirements and such in there. But it also has this clause that basically says the government can go in and collect any data it needs for national security. So that's where I think we see some of that fundamental difference. Mm. But again, I just think it's important to sort of portray it for, you know, in a more of a fact-based way than in sort of a civilizational or a racial way. The racial stuff is really concerning to me. This spring, I testified before Congress twice, the Senate and the House. And I said in both testimonies, I am really worried about how Chinese students and researchers here in the United States are being targeted and discriminated against. And I think that that's very dangerous when we start presenting this in sort of racialized terms. And also in your testimony to the House Affairs Foreign Committee, you mentioned that and actually pose a question how do we maintain openness of the U.S. system in a way that's less vulnerable to exploitation? Is it possible to build a system that is both open and resilient? And yeah. you answer yes. And I was hoping that you could respond more to your own question. How is that maintained and what levers are required to balance openness and resilience? This theme of openness with resilience is something that I'm really interested in because I think 
the openness of the U.S. is our greatest strength. And when we start compromising that, that becomes a greater threat to U.S. national interests in and of itself, right? So how do we do that practically? And there are a number of tools, and I talked about some of them in the testimony. Um, when we think about some of the sort of traditional sources of vulnerability, right, like industrial espionage, technology transfer, ways maybe where our you know, U.S. companies or researchers could be complicit in things going on in China that would not be okay, right? So there's a number of tools at our disposal. One of them, um, I talked about export controls. So how do we create a sort of system where we're not blocking everything, but we're being selective? Um, and I propose right now there's a list, the Commerce Department Bureau of Industry and Security put out a list earlier this year of emerging technologies that should be subject to new export controls. And they've been sort of trying to get feedback on, well, what goes on that list? And I propose, I was like, look, the whole idea of lists for technologies that aren't even developed yet, to me, is actually impossible. It's more about putting in place a framework and a process. And that's something that I proposed. And you can look up my testimony online and sort of see some of my recommendations for what that process was. It's things like, you know, not... If we deem something essential to national security, that doesn't just mean the military uses it because the military increasingly uses a lot of commercial off-the-shelf technology. It has to actually be essential, right? Another example would be, is this some, an area where the United States is truly far ahead? It's truly cut leading edge. Or are there other suppliers around the world that China could go to and get it? And if the answer is the latter, it shouldn't be on the export control list because not only does that not sort of stop the leakage of that technology, but it also leads to a designing out of U.S. components in a way that just undermines the competitiveness of U.S. industry without doing anything sort of on the national security side, right? So there's a number of questions like that on export mm. controls. Something else I've talked about has been sort of market access issues for U.S. companies in China. Um, I've done a lot of work on the cybersecurity regulatory regime and all of the requirements that make it kind of tough for U.S. companies to really operate there and coming up with some really targeted demands on that front, but in particular working with allies and partners to create international pressure on the Chinese government, which is something that in the past we have seen examples where that has worked. So there are a number of ways to do it. And there's a, a, a phrase that I've, I've used where I'm quoting a statement from former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, basically, small yard, high fence. Be selective about what you want to protect, but aggressive in protecting it. And so with that idea of small yard, high fence, what should the U.S. be protecting? You know, I, so I mentioned there's some things on the, you know, the export controls is one. I think we also need to be thinking more seriously about where are integrated supply chains something that are in our own interest and can be, you know, there are there cybersecurity mitigation measures that can be taken mm. around that rather than blanket bans. If you ask a cybersecurity expert, do you do a blanket ban based on the sort of origin of a of a, of a company, they'll tell you no, that kind of goes against everything you learn about risk management and cybersecurity, where you design sort of um, fail safes around specific systems within a system. That's one to think about. I think we also need to think about some of the ethics of collaboration and, and open source research, right? There's kind of two extremes to this argument that I've heard, and I think neither are really correct. One of them is let's cut off 
all kind of research with China and emerging technologies because those technologies like AI, facial recognition, things like that, that can be used for surveillance purposes. That can be used in terms of detention and incarceration of Muslims in Xinjiang. The Xinjiang issue to me is a really important one. And I think it's where we need to do a thorough sort of examination of where are collaborations involving U.S. companies and researchers potentially contributing to that or supporting what's going on out in Xinjiang. It doesn't mean cutting off everything, but it does mean needing a real internal accounting process, which can be impossible when you try to think of what are the use cases? Who are the end users of your technology? If you're a big multinational company, that is fundamentally impossible sometimes to determine but that doesn't mean we can't do it. Um, and I've heard pushback from people in Silicon Valley, sort of in the AI research community, who will say, no, like this is basic research. It's not directly contributing to Xinjiang. Well, that's not really a good enough answer either. So I recommended in my last testimony, sort of the U.S. should actively engage with international standards bodies to create some new standards around how do we think about the ethics of AI collaboration, given the way that we know some of these technologies are being deployed. But let's do this without cutting off everything where it may not be necessary. Because what are you saying at the end of the day? Or do we, are we saying we shouldn't have any kind of collaboration with China? And I think that that's not the answer either. I did not even know about the connection of AI to Xinjiang. And I am a pretty avid follower of what's happening out there in Xinjiang. So that's very interesting um, to me. There's, there's a lot of interesting reporting, you know, Josh Chin um, at Wall Street Journal, Paul Mosier and others have sort of documented the way that technology is sort of being used as part of detention and monitoring of, of Uyghurs and pretty troubling stuff. So I think it's an important time to take stock and sort of look at to what extent is the U.S. potentially involved in that or not. It sort of gets to this question of like, what is dual use technology, right? Or like, if you have... Microsoft Word on your computer, does that mean that everyone that uses that computer with Word loaded onto it, does Microsoft have responsibility for the end use of, of every action that person does? But I just think these are important questions that need to be addressed, not necessarily in a US-China context, but just in a, what are the rules of the road and the ethics for these new technologies and sort of how they're changing society? And that conversation needs to happen in parallel. And that's a really exciting space to be in because the rules of those ro the road has, hasn't been written. And uh, it's up to, to policymakers, up to thought leaders to really be pushing that forward. So this is very interesting stuff. I do actually want to ask you about something. So we were at the, the SUP China conference for women uh, a few weeks ago. And you had the opportunity to speak on one of the panels. And I think actually one of the most tweeted quotes uh, that you brought up was, imagine if women had been at the table during the U.S.-China trade talks. And it was very provocative. And I, and I was hoping that you could explain why that's provocative and uh, what you kind of meant by that. When you look at the pictures coming out of looking at the U.S. and the Chinese delegations, it is just shocking because there are no women at the trade negotiation table. For months, there have been no women except the translators and probably some assistants. And it just raises a question to me, you know, the trade talks fell apart and we can't go back and say, well, 
you know, women would have changed that. We don't know, right? But I just think it's a, a question worth considering because I do think that women sort of can bring a whole nother set of skills that have to do with communication, with empathy, that just were not in the room. And I'm oftentimes at conferences where I'm the only woman on a panel or I'm asked to moderate and it's a panel of all men. You see a lot in the media when there's expert quotes, oftentimes those are all men. I'm very passionate about this because I think that right now, if you look out at the US-China policy field, a lot of the best and brightest voices out there, frankly, are women. And I just think that there's they're not represented in sort of the media and the conference circuit to the extent that they should. So I'm very passionate about this. And look, this is a sort of bigger issue than just gender. If you look at foreign policy, people of color, socioeconomic issues. When I worked at the Council on Foreign Relations, research associates, you know, people just out of college, basically could only afford to have that job at a place like CFR if they had help from their families, because the pay was so small. And I think that in the foreign policy community, that kind of elitism is is a problem and is something to do with why you see underrepresentation. So I focus on the women issue because that sort of is, is nearest and dearest to my heart and my own experience. Um, but it's something that I'm really passionate about. And um, I'm actually starting a new conference series. We're calling it the U.S.-China series. And we're going to be bringing discussion about China policy issues um, outside of Washington and New York to we're holding our first one in Seattle this fall. Um, and part of the, part of my, my, my goal is, is not just to bring the conversation outside the Beltway and the East Coast, but also to promote more diverse voices um, in this space that are doing some great work and, you know, for whatever reason are still underrepresented. That's really exciting. I want to just add one more thing about, Go for it. about the sort of manuals and, and, you know, media quotes. Oftentimes, if I say something about there being underrepresentation of women, one of the responses I often get is, you know, we asked, but nobody was available. And so this is a pretty common response. And so I wanted to give a suggestion on that front. I found that it's really important to all the time be cultivating a network of people so that when it does come that you have a tight deadline on a news story or you need to put together a panel for a conference, you're not starting from ground zero to go and say, oh, let me find you know a woman or another diverse voice on this. But you already have a network and a community that's representative that you can draw on. And so to always be doing that. So part of the thing that I do is sort of trying to build that sense of community around myself regularly so that when I am putting together these panels, I have people I can go to and I'm not in a pinch. Yeah, and that's such an actual piece of advice because I think a lot of the time it's easy to have that cop out of I didn't know someone in the moment, but if you can do that in advance and really try to embody having diverse perspectives around you all the time, then that last minute excuse really doesn't hold its own anymore. And it makes the quality of your work better at all times. You know, there are there is great research out there that shows diversity leads to better outcomes, whether it's in business or in foreign policy. So if you're doing that all the time, the quality of your work is probably a lot better too. I'm also usually hesitant to ask this question, but I think it's an important one. What is it like being a woman in such a male-dominated field? You know, I'm going to give you a really candid response to that. 
which is, I think my answer to that question has probably shifted even in the past year. And I would have answered it more differently in my 20s, for example, than now in my mid-30s. You know, I've recently, because I work with some awesome men, right, who are progressive and care about these same issues that we're talking about. To be frank, I've also worked with some pretty, you know, not great men. And in my 20s, I think I would have tried to sort of be strategic about it. Like say there was someone that was important professionally, but he was flirting with me or hitting on me. I would sort of go, you know what, I'm going to set boundaries, but I'm going to kind of be strategic and make sure that I can get professionally from this, you know, what I need. Now, because I work with such great men, I won't put up with that anymore. I won't go have drinks with a man who I think I need something from professionally and put up with him being flirtatious. I just won't tolerate it um, because I don't think I need to, frankly. And so that would be some advice that I would give to to younger women. But that's a very sort of from the heart candid answer to your question. No, I I love it. And do you think it's something that you're you're conscious to? What I what I see happen a lot is very successful women, they try not to to think or be conscious about their gender because it, you know, either helps them focus on their work. I mean, it's not that, you know, thinking about gender all the time is going to be distracting, but my question is, are you conscious to your gender? Oh, of course. I think that, you know, my femininity is, is a great strength and it's something that I embrace. I'm very open about you know, I talk about being a mother. I talk about getting my nails done. It's all part of the whole package of me. And some other advice that I would give, not just to women, but to men, to everyone out there, is sort of bring your authentic self to work. And if your authentic self has a real strong feminine side, bring that too. So for me, yeah, the answer would be yes. And you mentioned being a mother. You have two sons. They seem lovely and it's probably a lot to manage. (laughs) Um, What have you found works for you and your family from both a familial and professional sense? Having a flexible work schedule can be both a blessing and a curse. Something that's been hard for me is to sort of be better at being in the present when I'm with my kids Um, because I love what I do and I love communicating with people all over the world about what's breaking in Chinese tech policy. There's a temptation to, you know, at dinner time, I'll be, you know, in the kitchen, my boys will be, you know, around and all there's a temptation to sort of like pick up my phone and be not be on Twitter and looking at all this stuff flying around in my professional life. But just sort of being able to say, you know what, this is really sacred time. Friday nights, our family likes to just stop everything that we're doing if we can by about 3 p.m. and just make Friday nights sort of a special family time where, you know, we'll go for a nature walk, we'll have dinner, uh, maybe a family movie, but just really making sure to be in the present, turning on music helps. Um, So it can be hard to kind of turn it off, but you have to. Yeah. And you know, your son, sons are on the younger side. Uh, what do you want to teach your sons? And what do you think is important for them to know and learn? It's probably a lot of things, but relevant to, to this podcast. I was talking to my husband about it last night, and I'm going to use what he said because I just love the way he put it. I, I said to him, you know, what, what do you want from our, what do you want our sons to, to, to grow into? And he said, I want them to be kind conscientious, considerate, and resilient. 
And I think all of those things are so important. The kindness, particularly in this day and age when you've got a lot of bullying, you know, how do we think empathetically about other people around us? Mm. Um, oh, and, and curious, curious for to, to learn. My son the other day after school came home and was so excited to tell me about the, his new literacy centers. I don't even know what literacy centers are in his kindergarten, <laughs> but he was telling me all about them and about, you know, his reading and all this stuff. And you know, I love that curiosity and excitement for what he what he's learning and resilience, because right now we have a really good life and things are easy for them and comfortable, but it's not always going to be that way. And when things are uncomfortable and hard for them to be able to be resilient is going to be so important. So I'm trying to figure out how do you teach resilience is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Yeah. And sometimes it's experience that leads to resilience that that's where I think those, those teaching moments, at least for myself in my life, that's where resilience has come from. Yeah. So You've imparted a lot of advice, but I do like to ask every single guest that comes on the show this specific question being, you know, what's one piece of advice that someone's given you in the past that now suddenly you found yourself giving to others? A good friend of mine who is a very senior lawyer in a multinational company and a mom of three and very passionate about women's issues recently said something to me, which I love and I've been using. She said, ask for what you want. You know, people can say no, but ask for it. And maybe they'll say yes. And I think particularly for, you know, when we're building our careers and there's something that would be beneficial, don't be afraid to lay it out there. And it's not coming, it's not a weakness to ask. And it's not like you're making, putting someone in a bad position. If they don't want to do it, they can say no. And oftentimes what she told me, which I think is so true, is that the act of giving, if someone asks something from you and you're in a position where you can add value to them, that's also really rewarding to them as well. So I've just been asking for things and laying it out there and seeing what comes back. Really great advice and really such a pleasure to have the chance to talk with you. It's amazing how we can flex uh, from talking about cybersecurity policy to your kids at home. It's really great to just see the, the breadth of your experiences and how they all come together to to make you who you are. Well, thank you so much for making this conversation happen. I've been really excited about it because oftentimes these worlds are very separate for me. So I love the opportunity to be able to bring it all together in one conversation. And I hope it can be helpful for uh, people out there in the audience too. Great. Well, thank you so much, Sam. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in today. Ta for Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser Quo for co-producing and Jason McRonald for editing. Also make sure to check out the other great podcasts on the Seneca Network. I also do love hearing from listeners, so questions, comments, general musings can be sent to ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.